Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantra Mitra. And on today's episode, we are finishing a three-part series on the French Revolution and the rise and fall of Napoleon. In this episode, of course, we are dealing with the dramatic fall of Napoleon. Every great story in history, I think, comes with a, a rise and a fall. In the case of Napoleon, it's a rise and a fall and a rise and a, a fall again. Um, but we're going to start our, our story here uh, in this last episode with Napoleon's triumphant march into Russia with, with the Grand Army. And I, I think it would be good for you, to Sumatra, to, to kind of explain why on earth Napoleon decided to march his armies into Russia, making this fatal decision, fateful decision, and uh, and what that army was like. I mean, what was what was he going into? What makes uh, his invasion so unique in history? So we stand at a position where Napoleon more or less is the master of Europe, but he has kind of like found himself in a position where he cannot do anything to Britain. And uh, that's kind of like a sort of a stalemate. His personal relation with Russia was relatively good at this hour, at this point of time. Um, the Austrians and the Prussians were smarting from loss from Napoleon. They couldn't really recover because Napoleon was too big for them and too massive to defeat. But the Russians were not directly threatened. Um, and uh, uh, the Russians, you know, one, one of the things which Napoleon kind of liked uh, when he sent his ambassadors to Russia is the Russians said that they are no fond of the British. So, you know, one of the things which the Russian, you know, czar mentioned directly is like, you know, I hate the English as much as you guys. Uh, because at that point of time, Britain and Russia was also sort of like having a kind of basic, um, you know, uh, rivalry, which has always been there because of the Indian, uh, Indian Empire. And... Uh, so Napoleon sent one of his uh, trusted old lieutenants, uh, Kulakur, who was who's also a noble. Um, he's a very tragic character in a way because he was one of the old guards who kind of remained loyal to Napoleon, but never really uh, got that kind of respect that he deserved in a way. Uh, one, Napoleon didn't really trust any upper class uh, noble or gentry, and two. Uh, they also didn't really trust Napoleon anyway. So he sent Kulakor. Kulakor didn't want to go that uh, go there to Russia. He sent him to Russia and sort of like said that you need to stay there for two years. We need to kind of talk. And uh, at that point of time, because of Napoleon's policies, uh, primogenitures and all that kind of stuff, legal stuff, for example, uh, you know, uh, giving right to the firstborns, as you mentioned, and all that kind of stuff, that sort of started to create some kind of problem for the for the lords, uh, even in the eastern parts of the empire, and Russians were like worried about it. So, and Russians didn't really want to be a part of the of the trade war with Britain. Um, so he sent Kulakor. Kulakor came back, and uh, and Napoleon said, asked like, and by that time Napoleon was trying to change his policy towards Russia. He was already threatening that we're just going to go. He didn't really go want to go to war technically, um, but also we have to realize that at this point of time the Russians. Uh, have been defeated, um, you know, by Napoleon. Napoleon knows his power. He 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 fought in in ice. He he never really and he never really thought that he's going to go all the way uh, and had to be in a place which is essentially burned down by their own people. Um, 
So Napoleon created this huge, massive army of almost like half a million people. Um, and, you know, all things considered, beasts and everything included, and started moving towards Russia. The Russians avoided uh, directly facing uh, him. And he was, and in, in, in that time, he was constantly mocking anyone who was giving him, like, this is one of the things about Napoleon, like, regardless of how good his victories have been so far, he was a ridiculously small-minded and petty guy, you know, and he was constantly mocking those people who were trying to advise him about, uh, you know, you shouldn't go to Russia. And he was like, Russian winter is going to be horrible for you. You won't be able to manage. And he was like, ah, it's fine. You know, and that was like October. So, <laughs> you know, he, he, I mean, so he, he, he went to Russia and obviously he found the Russians didn't want to get, get you know, go to war. His troops started dying because of, you know, various diseases, including typhus. Um, the cold was unbearable. They, he, was, he said he had to eat his own, you know, they had to, you know, kill horses and start eating them. And the Russians essentially burned down Moscow. Like, they, they, they couldn't stay anywhere. Like, it, it was literally camp uh, life for them. So he obviously <laughs> failed and started coming back and the Russians and Prussians and Austrians, like, took this opportunity and started to kind of, like, haunt him throughout his journey back. And, uh, and that was the... And, and most importantly... The the mirage of Napoleon being a great genius was already at that point time broken. You know, his navy was defeated in Egypt. He has lost majority of his massive army. Napoleon being the power that is undefeated, undefeatable in, in the European continent. It's it, it's it's a it's a it's a careful myth that was created partly by him as well, and that was lost. Yeah, you know, it's first, you know, of course, it's remarkable the size of the army that he built. Being around half a million, as you said, especially when you compare it to when you talk about the American Revolution, I think the, the most number of men that George Washington commanded in the Continental Army was around 13,000. Right, <laughs> this, right. this is an army of, of, of half a million men of the various peoples of Europe as part of this coalition. Um, pr- unbelievable. I mean, it really reminds you of kind of the buildup of, you know, the campaign uh, Barbarossa in World War II. I mean, it was a very similar kind of situation, this massive army ready to strike into Russia. And yeah. the, the how few people actually came back. I mean, it's I, I think that the total numbers were somewhere around 20-some thousand actually made it out of Russia alive. I mean, that's the, the kind of casualties you're talking about there are almost unheard yeah. of in, in warfare. And that's that's what it was. And it wasn't mostly... Uh, casualties on the battlefield it was casualties because of the harsh conditions i mean napoleon won many of the battles that he uh, basically won all the battles virtually uh that he that he uh got involved in in russia uh but still lost yeah no you're absolutely right i mean the the uh, we have to also remember that this is uh the journey of massive armies in those days was not an easy thing to do. Like, even during Barbarossa, Hitler faced the same problem. Like, the moment your logistics and supply lines becomes very stretched, you kind of have rearguard action. Now, it was easy for Hitler because essentially at that point of time, literally everything was under the Nazis. Napoleon didn't really have that advantage. There were still powers like Prussia and, and Austria, which were still nominally independent, you know? I mean... They didn't want to go to war with Napoleon alone, obviously, because Napoleon would have been would have defeated them. But the curious thing about any power or central power in Europe, European continent, is because it, it, it invites a balancing coalition. You know, Napoleon invited seven coalitions, for example. And the only time Napoleon himself 
sudden war was in in Spain. Uh, so in a way, he's kind of like a tragic figure. Like he had to kind of fight wars which were started upon him. Uh, now, obviously, one can argue that partly because of his own faults, but oh, nevertheless, he was fighting defensive actions which are relatively easier anyway. But to have like a massive army, and and we have to remember, this is an army with beasts of burden. Like this is not a modern army with mechanized warfare. Like this is literally like a lumbering, like miles and miles of cars and horses and camels and you know all the kind of beasts and dogs and you know and people who work in the camp, for example, like aides. You know, aid to camp. Um, they don't even take part in fights, and they're not. You know, they're not killed even the war when the war is over. Or you're so. So this is a massive mass of people moving towards a country which they have no idea and, 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 and ridiculously badly planned, obviously. Um, this is also kind of like crumbles the, the myth of Napoleon being a genius in warfare. I mean, yes, he won 46 out of 60 battles, but the, he lost the big ones, which actually mattered. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I can only imagine you know, how things must have felt as he enters Moscow and it's, it's deserted and realizing that, you know, this is only, this is, this will only be the beginning of the fight in a place like Russia right. controlling the city like that was, would, would not ultimately win as, as he had won in so many other wars uh, in his past that it wasn't so simple. And then having to make that, that long March back to the, to, to March back to what once was your glorious empire marching back to, what is nothing as enemies have sprung up around him. Everybody is using this moment to, to knife uh, Napoleon. Of course, the British seize this moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, to go from the master of the continent to having a, a, a piddly army and he has, he's unable to even uh, recreate any kind of effective force. In fact, it seems his downfall happens very shortly uh, after his collapse in Russia, that there's basically, He's a spent force, and it seems everybody knows it. Yeah. So I, I just checked on some of the numbers. Um, the Napoleon, so with half a million forces that he went to Russia, he came back with around 40,000. And uh, the amount of you know life loss, and the Russians lost around 150,000, so they, it's, it's not small in it by any measure, but still, nevertheless, compared to... You know, Napoleon, that's it's still reasonable. And also, we have to remember, Russia was not facing a whole bunch of armies surrounding it. You know, it was Napoleon who was facing all the threats. Um, when he came back, he still had a pretty sizable empire, and uh, he was still quite powerful. Like, for the, the, the next battle that he fought in, in around Leipzig or Dresden or something, he still had, like, a, a massive force of around 400,000 people um, because France was the largest you know, manpower in those days. It could it could just draw back in its reserves. But by that time, Napoleon's tactics uh, were the same, you know, and people kind of, like, realized what he could do. Like, he could move, you know, armies in small ways. You know, he could take up the position and then just throw men at it because he had just too many men. Um, while in the previous warfares, he faced um, countries which were kind of, like, you know equally bad in tactical, you know, cases. By that point of time, um, the act of element of surprise was completely gone and everyone knew what he's going to do. The British invented by that point of time rifles, which was a new thing to, to bring to warfare, you know, rapid firing rifles and self-loading guns. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, had massive cannons with which they can like accurately aim. Um, 
so and, and Napoleon didn't have the money to to do any kind of innovation. Like he had the Academy of Science, the French Academy of Science, which was constantly helping him in in his uh, misadventures in in Middle East and everywhere else. But they were not really the kind of guys who could invent stuff because he just didn't have the money. Yeah, I, you know, I think too also that you know while Napoleon was master of Europe, he also had a lot of trouble in Spain. You kind of see some of the issues that developed there. And, and of course, the British are, are highly involved in this. And yeah. I, I think that you see the British kind of, I, I think that seems to be the, the, the real kind of seeds of the beginning, the end uh, of Napoleon. Of course, you know, the famous guerrillas of Spain. Uh, but I think the British are really refining their own tactics uh, as far as how to beat Napoleon's armies uh, when it came, push came to shove. And while the British army was never, uh, of the size of Napoleon's army, given the fact that they were able to create a coalition, they were at least able to, to get close to some of the numbers. And because some of the generals who had fought him, like, like Wellington, who would of course be, uh, become very famous thereafter, uh, you, you, as you said, you, you definitely see the, the countries of Europe starting to catch up to the refinements that Napoleon had made in his tactics and his strategy. And so to a certain extent, even by his, you know, his, his 30s, Napoleon was already on on the downswing of his career, and and the, the genius uh, that he had demonstrated so many times seemed to be escaping him. Maybe the luck a, a bit too uh, through all of this. Um, so, of course, Napoleon is eventually defeated uh, by the coalition. His forces are defeated, and he comes into a negotiation in which they agree essentially to allow him to go into exile. To the island of Elba, which I think is uh, an interesting thing. You know, of course, you know, this man who is the most powerful in Europe being sent off to to an island uh, to, to, to what they thought at the time would be to finish his days. It's interesting, of course, that they didn't just uh, immediately execute him or anything like that. Um, they decide to exile him and he has to stew away. It's interesting. I think they, they, he was actually aboard the HMS uh, Undaunted. Uh, when he was sent to the island, which I find uh, an interesting choice of ships. But talk a little bit about his time there in Elba and his, I guess, brief period, really, uh, staying on the island before his reemergence. So he, you mentioned an interesting thing about the British. If you see the traditional British strategy when it comes to, to the European continent, one of the things that the Brits have done throughout their history is throw money. You know, throw money at conflicts and let the other foot soldiers fight. You know, this is one of the difference, and, and this is extremely relevant when it comes to like modern American grand strategy and British arms. Both America and Britain wanted to have, uh, on on one hand, a European continent which is not united, to have be under one single hegemon, and even and that is a standard American foreign policy strategy even now. Even though we talk about European Union and Europe whole and free, we don't want the European Union to be more powerful than than us. You know, and that's completely understandable. You know, tomorrow, if they're a hegemon, if they have an enormous amount of military power, we are the ones who are going to be tariffed out. You know, we they won't be able to, like, come to war with us, maybe. But nevertheless, who? I mean, they're, they're still going to be a hegemon. So that has been forever British strategy as well. The difference, though, is the Americans like to institutionalize peace under the European Union and NATO and all this, you know, supranational umbrella, whereas the British had a very simple balance of power rule. You know, whoever is the small smaller power, you throw money at it. Even now... You can see the British, you know, they, they spend a whole bunch of money in Ukraine purely for the sake of not. I mean, there's literally no British, no Russian threat to the British, you know, islands anymore. 
But, you know, the idea that there should be a conflict brewing in Europe, which might keep Europe dis disunited, is a standard British strategy. So you mentioned Spain, and it was one of the things that were British were funding, and obviously they were funding the Russians and the Prussians. You know, Prussia was one of the, the original allies of, of UK. And, and Naples, you know, Napoleon put his own people in, in the throne of Naples and then just literally like took him back. And, you know, he, because he was so petty and so weird, you know, he, he always had that complex. He, he never really had anyone else take power because he was just paranoid about people going against him. Um, so he did that. So one, uh, the second thing about Napoleon not being executed is a very interesting policy. Um, when Napoleon came to this negotiation, there was this huge idea in parts of Europe, mainland Europe, that we should we should execute this upstart. You know, first of all, he's not he's not no, an upper class guy. He's not one of us. He, he's a usurper. He has taken the great Bourbon throne. You know. Secondly. We mentioned Kulakur, but Kulakur's one of Kulakur's biggest friends was the Duke of uh, the the Duke who was a Bourbon who was executed because uh, Napoleon thought he was planning against him. Like he was just a, and 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 after that, since then, all the uh, geniality that was there between the various uh, noble houses and Napoleon and you know the Tsar, you know Napoleon's marriage was supposed to be the Tsar's sister or something like that it didn't work out obviously. Uh, that all died down because they thought that this guy is not just like you know a tyrant, but he's also really hot-headed. You cannot really trust him. Um, so when there was this negotiation happening, uh, there was this huge push that we should just ex execute Napoleon and just be done with it. One of the things that Castlery uh, did was to avoid that thing, avoid that scenario where they execute Napoleon and say, hey, you know, if Napoleon is executed, we make a mortal enemy of the entire French country. We don't, at the end of the day, the French people support Napoleon. And we have to, regardless of what happens after Napoleon, we have to think of an order that is created from this, from the fumes of, of this, of the revolutionary warfare and the Napoleonic warfare. So, and, and, and that is something which used to be done in those days. Like people used to forgive and exile, you know, tyrants or, or you know, enemies, which didn't happen uh, hundreds of years later in the First World War when Lansdowne said the exact same thing in 1917 that, you know, we are already winning. We should stop the war and let Germany just be a husk state. But, uh, you know, no one, people just overruled him and went with the Treaty of Versailles and led to this total war, which led to Nazi Germany 20 years after. So in those days... Um, there was still um, an idea that you know you can you can you can negotiate and you can exile and you can still have the country on your side and a lot of the nobles and uh, upper class houses in France, which was uh, which were of the Ancien Regime and they were opposed to Napoleon, they were having these back channel discussions with the Brits and the Austrians about uh, what the post war order is going to be. Talleyrand, for example, was one of them. Like he, he, he served the revolution, he served Napoleon and served the post Napoleonic Bourbons. You know, he's, he's, he's like a Martin classic. Reagan. Yeah. He's, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. I mean, he's an absolute scoundrel, but you have to love him. Like this is the, this is the classic diplomat of, of 19th century, Metternich and Talleyrand and, you know, Castlebury. And these are the Nesselbrook from Russia. And these are the names which are, you know, the kind of diplomacy, which was shrewd but also very sympathetic to the other side. It's almost lost these days. Like we don't think about the Russians or the Chinese. We think about our interests only, uh, but it was a very different scenario those days. So Napoleon was not executed. He was ex exiled to Elba. 
he stayed there and immediately started plotting about returning to France, which he eventually did. And at that point of time, the Bourbons, no one liked the Bourbons. You know, the French, the revolutionary idea was still strong in France. Um, and and in, in some ways, Napoleon kind of gave the legitimacy of the idea that you might not have, you don't have to be a Jacobin, but you can still be from a normal people and still feel, feel this nationhood and, you know, this identity. You can be anyone in France and you can still reach the position of power. And look, we used to own this continent. France was the biggest power and that happened under Napoleon. People liked him. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's what's amazing, of course, when he escapes Elba, he, he, he goes back to France and starts to rebuild his army again. Of course, many are, are a little wary initially because, of course, they had just gone through the years of wars. They had gone through the defeat. But he's such a charismatic figure that he seems to, especially as he's gaining momentum, that even though many are told that they are supposed to stop and arrest Napoleon, fewer, none are able to do it. He has such a force, such a magnetism about him. And I think that really goes to something about the, the French character, too. I mean, they... This was a man who represented funny, funny again, you know, being a, a, originally a Corsican, but who really represented something distinct about France and, and France at its peak and in, in its golden days. And uh, even though he returned just a, a, a few short years later, um, people were willing to to take up arms once again and join his armies. Now, one can say, I mean, maybe he shouldn't have started to immediately think about uh, conquest and warfare again, just returning, maybe he could have actually survived. But I, I first of all, I don't think that that was really in Napoleon's character. I mean, ha he had many other options as far as where to go and how to uh, end things. Um, but his choice was essentially to go to war once again, which I think is, is very interesting, of course, leading up to his ultimate downfall. But, you know, rarely in, 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 in human life, do you get such a, a second act that is so dramatic? Um, this is definitely way up there as far as uh, second acts in human life. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons why Napoleon, you know, his undoubted greatness is absolutely right. You, you mentioned the, the drama of the entire thing, you know, that this guy just goes to Elba, comes back, and, and the way he returns, he stands in front of the front of the soldiers who are supposed to arrest him and say, like, I am your emperor, arrest me if you want to. And then they, the soldiers just drop their weapons and start shouting, people are emperor, you know? You know? It, 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 it's, it's, it's just incredible to even like, just thinking about it just can, will give you goosebumps. Imagine a guy just completely alone and going and standing, it's like, yeah, I'm here. If you want to kill me, kill me, but I'm your emperor. You know, it's, it, it takes the amount of, uh, amount of, you know, moral courage and strength, which is unthinkable. Um, but at that point of time, Napoleon was already marked for uh, no power in Europe wanted to give Napoleon a second chance. I mean, in, in some ways, he didn't really have a choice um, <laughs> to avoid war. Like the Seventh Coalition, immediately the moment, and, and there is this thing where they talk about how uh, the newspaper, the printing press in those days was obviously you know, ex rapidly expanding. And the newspapers were covering the return of Napoleon and the and the headlines started to change. The first one was like, the traitor is coming back. And, and the last one saying, emperor is in Paris, feel emperor. You know? <laughs> it's, it's just absolutely incredible to even think about uh, the march of Napoleon back to Paris. But at that point of time, the Seventh Coalition was already determined. Britain wasn't 
you know, it, 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 they knew that Napoleon was a mortal threat. He, you cannot survive with this man. You cannot. This is the guy who butchered people in Jaffa. This is the guy who took 500,000 of his own men and essentially led them to death. Uh, and he doesn't really care. I mean, he didn't stop. He didn't come to any guy. This is not a power who would be satiated. It's a, it's a revolutionary power. He, he doesn't, he, even if he doesn't, you know, export the rep revolution like the Jacobins were trying to do, but nevertheless, he's, he's not a status quo power and you have to go to war with him. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think you're right about that to a certain extent. There was, this was, this was only going to kind of end one way. I think Europe had already seen enough of what Napoleon was capable of and what he, what he would do once in power. I mean, there's no question that he had revolutionary ideas as far as, uh, where he was going to take Europe. Um, and, and it seems that, that maybe, you know, this, this kind of collision was going to be inevitable that the, even after the restoration, especially after the restoration, they weren't going to allow him to wiggle his way back into power. Um, so of course, Napoleon takes his armies and it, of course decides to go against the coalition and ends up in, of course, the most fateful battle, maybe one of the most fateful battles, certainly in human history, in, in, in Waterloo, uh, in Belgium. I think there's actually a town nearby that's, that's named that. And somehow, you know, of course, the, the story of Waterloo has been told time and again, but the, the genius escapes him, that he's not able to pull the rabbit out of the hat this time. He's faced with now generals who can match him tactically he's faced with armies that um are now in combined force larger than his and know are onto his game and even though he's marshaled a number of his very able lieutenants to fight with him um he really goes into this with i, I would say less than 50 50 chances of winning it and of course ends up in the most dramatic defeat possible with the the old guard, the 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 the, the soldiers who had been with him for through so many of his fights uh, before, eventually breaking at the battle and running, which I think is a, a little bit of the the final the final act uh, for Napoleon's conquests, and um, of course that was that was it for his army as it as it disintegrated. Um, you have anything to more, more to add about about the Battle of Waterloo? I know it's. There's, of course, a, a great movie about Waterloo I, I definitely uh, recommend. Uh, but uh, do you have anything more to add about the battle itself? I think the, the thing about Waterloo is the thing that bothers me at times is how people think, well, at least in Britain, I don't know how it's, it's viewed in the American historical circles, but in Britain, they kind of like, have this idea of finality about Waterloo, like it was determined, we would have, you know, Napoleon could have won. It wasn't the case. I mean, <laughs> Napoleon was, all, he could have won. I mean, Britain could have lost. It was a matter of timing. It was a matter of luck. And uh, like you mentioned, the, the, the core of the Grand Army, the, the one that came back from Russia, was the Republican Guard. That was the, Napoleon's private, essentially private guards. Um, you know, and they were the most powerful and they were the most steadfast and stoic armies. And it was like right from the morning, from 9.30 onwards, it was a battle which was completely, you know, seesawing between the two. The Scottish dragoons were attacking Napoleon's guards and they were being repelled back. And the Napoleon's forces were attacking, you know, Wellington's rear guard and they were being repelled back. 
And there were like fightings going on over mounds and hills and buildings. Like one building had a gate and they fought over like half an hour just to just to capture that gate. You know, it, it's 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 something which defies logic. It was the one of the bloodiest and most bloodthirtiest, you know, fighting. And, and there was this one quote from Wellington saying that, um, gentlemen, the pounding is hard. But we can see who can pound longer, or something like that, mm. you know. <laughs> and, and 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 that's essentially what happened. So it was it was kind of like a blind luck that Blucher, you know, came with his troops at the time he came. And you mentioned the guards. Um, I think when the guards, Napoleon was, he did pretty much everything that he shouldn't have done that day. Like he he waited with the with the guard for not, you know, didn't use the guard to attack Wellington in the in the beginning well, at that point of time, and in the, in the end. When he actually, you know, he could have just taken that guard back to Paris and, you know, waited longer for for the for the defeat, but he just sent his guard all at the same time, and he was they were just being massacred. And and mo the moment the guards' front line started to fall down, there was like panic in his entire troops because up until that point of time, in the entire Napoleonic history, the guard never lost. You know, they never faltered. They never stopped their you know moving march past. You know, one man died, someone else comes and takes his place. You know, that's how the guard operated. But that stopped, you know, they faltered, they stopped, they stumbled back, you know, the entire front line was kind of broken down. And that created such a amount of panic. And they said, the guard be cool, like, the guard be cool, but the guard is recoiling, which means, you know, and, and that, at that point of time, the hopes were lost. So Napoleon had to rush back to Paris to wait it out. And he, he sort of thought that he's going to die in a battle, but he didn't. He wasn't that lucky um, in a way, like he wanted to be a martyr in a way, but he couldn't. So he went back to Paris and then he sort of like tried to flee, um, but he was captured and taken to Bellerophon. Yeah, it's a, it's a dramatic example of how morale and human psyche determines battles more than just uh, the number of people killed and slaughtered. I mean, yeah. people sometimes think of battles as, well, it's a fight to death. It's rarely ever a fight to a death. That's very unusual. Battles oftentimes are won or lost when somebody starts running, especially battles of, of that time period. And of course, the 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 old guard, which had had always, I mean, that's the re, that's what made them so elite. I mean, that's what made them so elite is that they could they could march into gunfire and wouldn't break. And when they broke, the whole yeah. army yeah. collapsed um, almost entirely because of that of that incident. I mean, they were they were sort of they were losing the battle, but it was really still on on the nice edge. But but that was it. Uh, yeah. And that really shows, you know, how that how that happens uh, in battles, you know, throughout history. And, um, you know, of course, you know, his army essentially disintegrates. He retreats back to Paris. And, you know, of course, then, you know, there's the, the second fall of Napoleon and the decision once again, you know, what do you do with this guy now that he's been defeated and the decision to exile him again, this time to St. Helena uh, after after his second grand act and his second attempt to recreate the empire he's he's exiled once again pretty amazing right yeah so he he there was this huge support and we we kind of discussed that before um within the sort of like the rationalists and liberal circles in britain about uh, about napoleon like um byron for example wrote a poem about castlery and the restorationist reactionaries so to speak who wanted to restore the ancien regime uh, that, you know, here lies Castlebury's uh, state of moment and pace or something like that. You know, everyone hated the, the right-wingers. Everyone hated the conservatives who wanted to bring back the old regime. Uh, so Napoleon sort of had uh, 
a little bit of support even in Britain, at least in the educated classes. I mean, it's it's it was kind of interesting to think about because Napoleon was used as a boogeyman, and people were like telling their kids to sleep, otherwise Napoleon will come, you know, and that kind of stuff. But but also uh, Napoleon also did the code Napoleon, as you mentioned. You know, he was the first guy to take um, scientists and archaeologists in campaigns, and he was like, you know, he he. Uh, defeated the you know, the feudal lords. He changed his, you know, because he was a very liberal guy in, in some ways, and he had some kind of uh, support even in the in the educated classes of Europe and especially in Britain. So there was already a, a movement to kind of spare Napoleon uh, the death penalty and execution. And you know, at that point of time, the coalition forces, the Allied armies, which was already in Paris restore the Bourbons, they knew that Napoleon has got nothing to do. And if they, you know, and at the, and after Waterloo and after, you know, Trafalgar especially, and after Waterloo, there was no rival for Britain, you know, for the next hundred years. It, 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 was the, it was the biggest power and especially the biggest naval power. And if you put someone in St. Helena in between the Atlantic, with a, you know, with the Royal Navy constantly guarding the, every single inch of that grey water, you know, it, they didn't really care much about Napoleon anymore after that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I believe, um, again, sort of one of those counterfactuals of history i know napoleon's brother actually did make his way to the united states and and, right. and married and lived in america you know i think napoleon even wrote about briefly about maybe he would escape to america and reinvent himself as a, as a scientist in america which um i do find it interesting you know maybe he should have maybe he should have done that the first time i, I do kind of wonder how he would have done as an american in that system i i feel that Somebody now Napoleon, I think, was had such grandiose designs that it was never in the cards. Um, though I do wonder, you know, how he would have done in other endeavors. Would he have been equally successful in business and science and law? Um, maybe. Um, I mean, one of the things about Napoleon is he was a very petty man. So I, I, even if he moved to the United States, would he be able to like, you know, adjust to the, to the more Republican sort of ideals in those days, like to be one of the equal and, you know, have this, you know, senatorial aspiration, something like that. I mean, he, this is a guy who exiled the mistress of Kulakur because Kulakur told him not to invade Russia, which he was right about. So we are talking. About, so I mean, uh, yes, in a way, Napoleon could have been uh, technically could have been to U.S., but I mean, it, I don't think it would have been good for the United States at that point of time, anyway, to have like kind of like a French phalangist kind of guy who's constantly like you know harping about war with Britain. Um, but also on the other hand, he was a really petty and you know bullying kind of guy. He would have he would have been miserable, you know, <laughs> wherever he went. Yeah, it's funny. Again, I, you know, I, I do like to make the comparison to George Washington. I, I think Napoleon even wrote, I mean, he he, he kind of lamented, and I, I, don't, I kind of only take his laments half-hearted, like, oh, you know, if only I was in America, I could have been at George Washington, but, you know, here I am with France, yeah. and I have to, you know, go and conquer all these things. Again, I think part of that is what he wanted to tell himself and how he wanted to create his own image uh, in his mind. Um, because I, I think you're right. I think just the temperament and mentality of Napoleon, especially by, by his, after his second fall from grace, I think that, you know, with the, the ego that he had and the, where his head had been after all of this, even after his defeats, I think he wouldn't have adjusted to, to life in America, even if that should have been his, I mean, that's where he should have, uh, what he should have done. I think you're right that, um, it wasn't going to work out. Uh, for him in, in the United States. 
So yeah. I think what's what's interesting, especially of course now, you know, dealing with the final fall of Napoleon and his death uh, after a short exile in St. Helena, in which of course there are some who think that um, the British actually poisoned him at some point. And there's still people who think that. I know there've been, uh, you know, there've been tests on his body and whatnot. So I, I don't think that was actually the case. I think it was a stomach cancer uh, that right. got him. But you know, he kind of spent spends his last miserable years into his 50s you know stewing away on the island before uh finally kicking off um and left a pretty incredible record certainly left a europe that was entirely changed after he was gone that had gone through what you could say was a basically a, a world war um you have all these nations that now have been created in europe um the old system and, and it really is i guess you could say a triumph for the reactionary forces um, in Europe, but the continent has deeply changed. It's it's totally reshaped. Even if they have find victory over the emperor, um, things don't go on as they were before, do they? No, they don't actually. And that's that's one of the one of the one of the tragedies. And this is, I think, uh, an interesting part where we actually discuss the legacy of whether Napoleon was great or not. I mean, how do we even define whether you know he was destined for greatness? I mean, in which, which way? He definitely changed Europe. He gave Europe, uh, uh, you know, things that um, would have happened maybe otherwise anyway. Would have taken time, but no one really knows. But he, regardless of you know his his legal you know ideas, his his codes, his his um, trade theories, uh, his you know house. Marking the the address group that we still use about odd numbers and even numbers, and that's a Napoleonic, you know, uh, idea. And so all of those things happened. He was a very flattening and egalitarian guy. Um, so he he sort of like um, you know um, he was good to people who were not from you know the true blue background. But on the other hand, he was also really petty, and he kind of like you know uh, he was disillusioned with with competence, and he was paranoid, and he didn't really give too much power to even his own brothers in a way. Uh, so that's there. But fundamentally, to your question, he also was the guy who put a live grenade under the old system, and that never really went away. So even after the fall of Napoleon, even with the concept of Europe, even with Metternich talking like he's the order of the, you know, he's the he's the rock of the old order and all that, it didn't really go back the way it, it was supposed to be because at that point of time the continent's design was completely changed. Napoleon was the first guy, for example, who had this idea of total national war. Up until that time, as you, as we discussed, you know, it was just wars between different powers. The majority of the people, yes, they were taxed, yes, they were like sacking and you know all that kind of stuff. But this entire idea of nations clashing with one another—that is the thing that we saw a lot more violently in the 20th century. You know, and that was started essentially. That was a that was a legacy of Napoleon's ideas. So in a way, yes, he was great, and he moved the, the you know the, the you know dials of time. But on the other hand, he was also the guy who who pretty much wrecked the entire system and didn't really didn't really you know, the old order died with Napoleon. Yeah. So kind of getting back to our original question about Napoleon, is a was he. Was he truly a great man of history? Um, and B, was was he a tyrant? I mean, ultimately, was was he was this man, this great man of history, actually a tyrant after all? Yeah, I mean, I I um, I actually have a, a quote from uh, Metanic, um, which 
So Metternich, when he, he met Napoleon, and I, I, I'm quoting from him, he, he observed that, you know, he met Napoleon and it was this little short man and Metternich was really a tall, you know, the old, you know, aristocrat. And he, he, he asked Napoleon that in ordinary times, armies are formed of only small part of the population. Today, it is the whole people that you have called to arms. Uh, and this is a matter of future generations. This is the way that that's going to you know, decide the fate of history. And Napoleon said, you're not a soldier and you do not know what goes on in, a soul, in the soul of a soldier. I was brought up in military camps. I only know camps. And a man such as I am does not give an F about the lives of a million men. You know, un homme comme moi c'est de faire de la vie d'un million d'hommes. You know, Metallic sometimes wondered how Napoleon did not, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he was like, how did this guy even live? Like, how can he just live like this and not look in the mirror and say, I have 500,000 people who died and that's on me, that's on my conscience. And I think at the end of the day, we have to, th if we think of reaction as something which is like old school and conservative as something like pro-peace, then Napoleon was an absolute tyrant. But the bigger question then comes, is when we are judging greatness, um, is tyranny at times needed um, to, to maintain order? Like what is, you know, Napoleon came to power at a time of complete anarchy, as you mentioned before, you know, in that way, yes, he was a tyrant, but was it, was he also, was it also necessary to be a tyrant in those cases? And I think that's a, that's a question that still is starting to answer. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is, is, most of the great men of history were tyrants in one way or another. And That's I think right. some of the characteristics that allowed them to be great, you know, led to oftentimes uh, tyranny as, as certainly as we would see it, but that's oftentimes better than, than many of the alternatives. I mean, you can even think back to, you know, Julius Caesar was Julius Caesar a tyrant. Well, I mean, yes, but look at the state of the Roman Republic uh, at, at the end of Caesar's <laughs> life. Uh, it was it was a mess. It, there was more violence that had taken place after the times of uh, Marius and Sulla, and uh, the, the 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 nation, if you can call the Rome, that was in was in turmoil and violence. They were looking for somebody to to restore order, and that's that's the reality. I mean, that's when when chaos and um, and anarchy reigns. Yeah. This is oftentimes what you get. And sometimes, a lot of the times, it's really a strong man of genius uh, who marches in. And fixes things. Now, of course, what's fixed, you know, the, the, they, they may crack a few eggs along the way, but they will restore order to things. Um, I guess the question is, I think the big question, I think it's one of the ones that I think bedeviled the founding fathers of the United States is how do we create a system in which we acknowledge men of genius and we acknowledge that, you know, great individuals and leaders are necessary uh, for society, for the survival and furtherance of society, but how do we make that so that the great men of our republic don't become tyrants? And I think that that is really speaks to the genius of the United States Constitution, of course, the the institutions that were created by it, the matching of ambition against ambition, which was part of the original intention of the Constitution. And you, know, you can see that the the difference in the trajectory of the American Republic and the French Republic. I think largely because of that. I mean, France had the great man of genius, a man who was a genius on battlefields, who, um, but at the same time, as, as I think Goethe, there's a great quote by Goethe saying that you know, Napoleon went out into the world seeking virtue, finding none, he sought power. Um, but for the founders, virtue still very much mattered, and there was yeah. virtue. 
and that was created by a system that, that allowed virtue uh, to, to rise to the top and, and suppress some of the, the natural tyrannical instincts of man. And I, I think that's why you have such a dramatic difference in how those civilizations develop, where the United States continues under the Constitution for over two centuries, and France goes through a series of kingdoms and, and empires and, and takes a, quite a long time to settle on anything, and I'm, who knows if they, they even are settled. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And I think that really goes to, to show that, you know, how much this, this question is an important one. I mean, of course, you know, when you have a system where you have a lot of disorder, where you don't have uh, a rule of law, where you don't have uh, justice in society, how long before somebody like a Napoleon or a Caesar, you know, rises in that morass? And is that a good thing? It might be a preferable thing. It might be beneficial uh, compared to the alternatives. You know, as we said, you know, revolutionary france under rose pierre was a was a pretty terrible place to live and i yeah. think everybody really knew that and acknowledged that um so i think that napoleon's legacy of course is is a, a great man of history and a tyrant um but we shouldn't say simply that well all great men are are bad or, or wicked or, or wrong because after all you know we still need you know an abraham lincoln to step in the breach and save the union uh when the country is is collapsing and so, so it was also called a tyrant, by the way, who was definitely called a tyrant uh, yeah. by his certainly by his opponents. And even today, you certainly get some circles, people saying that Lincoln was really a tyrant. Well, yeah. you know, some of those measures that he took during the war were necessary to save the union. So um, so that's kind of how you have to evaluate, I think, some of the characters and people in history, including the great men that, yes, they'll do sometimes things that aren't aren't good and, and certainly are tyrannical. Um, but sometimes in the conditions of the time are necessary. I agree. I totally agree. Um, what books would you recommend for the for the listeners to uh, to read about Napoleon? So there's there there's so many. I think it's it's uh, it's hard to even <laughs> count. Um, I think one that I have really enjoyed. I read this recently. Was called. Uh, if you want more of the kind of military uh, campaigns, Napoleon. It's called literally the campaigns of Napoleon by. David Chandler. It's a, it's a bit of a, a lengthy read, um, but it really gets into the nitty gritty details of Napoleon's campaign, his uh, his background. It's it's got great maps of the battlefields if you're really interested in that. And I think it just really uh, gave a great perspective on the kind of overall kind of uh, military conquests of of Napoleon. There's also another book. It's kind of an old book um, by this man named Emil Ludwig. It was written, I believe, in the early uh, 20th century that's kind of more of a narrative account uh, of Napoleon from like almost like a first person's perspective it was very influential at the time and it's 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 I think it's a, a great work it's very creative and I think that um, it kind of takes you know a lot of it is sort of the, the author kind of acknowledges that um, a lot of the first person quotes are are his own but it does try to kind of get into the psychology of Napoleon I think it's a very interesting read um, how about yourself? What kind of books would you uh, would you recommend? So I would, given the course of our discussion, I would definitely mention Thomas Carlyle's uh, French Revolution: uh, A History. Um, it is interestingly uh, more in important as a book on Napoleon and Great Man Theory than the history of the French Revolution, which there are far better history books on French Revolution than this one, anyway. Um, as for Napoleon. I have a strange combination of two books, both with the same name, essentially. So, and which, by the way, we did. I 
figured out today after like reading these books for the last you know so many years um but only today i actually noticed that they have the same exact same name so the one the first book i mentioned came out in 2018 the book came out in 2018 the first book came out uh earlier it's called uh napoleon alive by adam zamoyski uh who is by the way the uh, a member of the zamoyski family from count zamoyski of poland uh, from the 15th century so he's he's a uh, it's a little critical uh, read on Napoleon and uh, and talks about how Napoleon <laughs> wasn't the, the, the great man that people portray him to be. Uh, the other book, also known as Napoleon Alive, um, is written by Andrew Roberts. And uh, this book is not critical. This book actually mentions that Napoleon is a great man. So in the spirit of reconsidering uh, history, I would advise... Uh, our listeners to read both of these books and kind of like form their own judgment as to which side which side of the camp they fall on. Yeah, and I, I would I would I guess add to the book recommendations the the movie recommendation I mentioned the movie Waterloo I believe it came out in 1971 it was like a combination like an Italian Soviet production actually but it was very good uh, movie and very interesting of course depiction uh, of the battlefields again if you're if you're interested in that so that was definitely. Absolutely. A, a great one that I enjoy watching. So uh, those would definitely be the recommendations. But uh, thank you so much for this this good long discussion about uh, the French Revolution, the rise and fall of Napoleon. I think uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned for the modern day and certainly one of the great epics in human history. Thank you. Thank you.